As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I wanted everybody to feel responsible for winning, not just doing their job. Yeah. And it was also, I knew we were going to lose a lot in the primary. And so it was really important to me that people felt like they were part of a team and that we were winning and losing together. So for example, one of the things we did was everybody at headquarters had to go out and canvas in New Hampshire precisely because I knew we were going to lose. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Robbie Mook was Hillary Clinton's national campaign manager in 2016. Since the election, he's been working up at Harvard on a project called D3P, the Defending Digital Democracy Project, which is developing strategies, tools, and technology to protect democratic processes and systems from cyber and information attacks. It's possible that his impulse to start D3P was linked to what happened during the campaign. Robbie is a well-liked campaign manager with a lot of wins under his belt, including Gene Shaheen for Senate in New Hampshire and Terry McAuliffe for governor in Virginia. Robbie was generous enough to talk to me at length about the 2016 election, his career in politics, D3P, and what he might be up to next. So, first our sponsor, and then my interview with Robbie Mook. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So Robbie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Robbie Mook. Um... I've been doing campaigns for the last few years. I uh, was born and raised in Vermont and got my start in politics there. Uh, my first job was actually knocking on doors um, and uh, worked there for a few years. Actually, let me ask you this. Oh, sure. What Do you mind if, if I interrupt at all or yeah, do you no, want please. the full range of like, because I was thinking. I'm here to help you. So whatever is helping <laughs> yeah. you. Okay. So I was going to say like um, Vermont, where you are from. Is is very close to where I spent a lot of time, Bradford, Vermont. Oh, really? Right, which is oh, just cool. up the road from yeah. Norwich, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and I actually just spent my summer there. Oh, that's so, awesome! So oh. I feel always a kinship to other yeah. Vermonters, and it's kind of odd to me that the that the two campaign managers for Sanders <laughs> and Clinton last time had such close ties to Vermont in yeah, one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I think that was really important and consequential because the relationship that I had with Jeff made a big difference, uh, just in terms of 
navigating parts of the primary, but then also the convention. And there aren't a lot of people from Vermont around. And so just having that in common, having that as a place to start and talk about things was, I think, really important. I was wondering about your relationship because when he went on television, he could be pretty strident and yeah. pretty... Uh, he could make his p- case pretty firmly. And, and as a Hillary supporter myself, I often found myself quite irritated with him. <laughs> I, I interviewed him earlier on the podcast. He couldn't have been nicer. Yeah, he's he's, a, he's a very, you know, his heart's in the right place. Yeah. He, he knows what he's doing. What's the personal between you two? Yeah, I, I think um, to be a good campaign manager, particularly in a primary, it's just important to have a dialogue with your opponent's manager. I've always operated that way. Even with Republicans, there are some examples where I I just wasn't able to have that kind of a dialogue with them or it didn't make sense. But in many cases, I did. And like I said, I think Jeff and I were able to bond a little bit over the Vermont connection. And we just, we had to work together. We had to. Yeah, Yeah, I disagreed with a lot of what he said. I've disagreed with things he said since election day sometimes. And I've been, I haven't pulled punches sometimes when I've talked to him, but, uh, nor has he pulled punches with me. But look, I, there was an interesting piece this morning I read uh, about how, on the one hand, people are sick of partisanship and they're sick of, you know, how combative politics has become. But on the other hand, they really want you to punch the other side hard. And I like I said, it, it, the idea that two Democratic campaigns can't talk to one another, I just think wasn't an option. And so I think we were both able to come together in that way. Yeah. So you you were you grew up in Vermont. Yeah. And. What was your very first political job or internship or how did you get into the, this field that you're in now? Well, I was spoiled because, as you know, I grew up on the Connecticut River mm-hmm. and our school district was a Vermont, New Hampshire school district. It was actually one of the last laws that John Kennedy signed uh, before he was killed. And so I was in middle school and high school in New Hampshire and Hanover is a must stop place for presidential contenders. So in 92, that's when I really got active and particularly in the general election. So my first, I have two big memories from that year. The first was when uh, I was threatened by the supermarket that they were going to call the police because I was like campaigning out front of the supermarket. They gave me, I think they were just trying to get me out of the campaign office and they gave me a sign and, and, and me and some friends of mine and they were like, why don't you guys go like do visibility outside? Cut down the corn sales or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were, they told us that, you know, they were very angry because we didn't really like go the first time they asked. The second one, ironically, was... Uh, you know, Vermont had not voted for a Democrat for president since Lyndon Johnson, I believe, because it went for Reagan in 80, 84, and then went for Bush in 90, or excuse me, in 88, if I'm remembering correctly, contrary to what people think. So it was like up for grabs or, you know, winning it was a thing. And so there was a big rally in Burlington. A bunch of us went up, and that was the first time I saw Bernie Sanders in person, Pat Lee, Howard Dean, and Bill Clinton. Actually, like I shook his hand on the, you know, on the, the entry shoot to the rally. So that was a lot of pretty consequential people in my life. But I had no idea as a seventh grader that, you know, <laughs> that that would be the case. Yeah. And so you got the bug, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did, and I can't. 
I can't tell you why. My parents were very political in that they had political views. They were Democrats. They, they were voted. Your dad was, your mom was a, your dad, my dad was, a, was professor. a professor. Yeah. yeah. My mom works at the hospital. Right. Dartmouth so, Hitchcock. I've been yeah. there many times. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully not. <laughs> not to <laughs> the emergency room. The burn, but yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I had a bike accident or two. So yeah, I don't quite know why, but I got up pretty early. Yeah. So. And then what was the first job? Like actual paid job in the space. Yeah. So the summer after my senior year of of high school, I call. I I knew Pat Lee. He was running for re-election. I'd actually been a. I, he appointed me to be a page for my junior year of high school. A Senate which I was page. Like, yeah, yeah. Which I was like super that's, grateful for. That's huge. It was when great. You, I mean, yeah. it was. I was such a privilege to do that. Particularly. You know, a lot of people appoint folks because their parents give a lot of money and stuff. And it was like me and actually Jeffords, who was the other, who was the Republican senator from Vermont at that time, appointed another Vermonter. And, you know, they really, it was like a thing you had to apply. And so anyway, it was really very lucky and privileged to be able to do that. And so I really wanted to help him get reelected. And I called up his campaign office and said, I want to intern for you. And they said, fine. And so I, I'd saved money. I, you know, I worked uh, when I was in high school and um, packed up. Uh, my parents lent me their old minivan for the summer, and I drove up to Burlington, found a place to live, and interned. And then, like the first week I was there, or something they were short a canvasser. They had about ten canvassers going around the state, and so they said, "Can you fill in?" And so I would intern in the morning, and then from like noon to eight or nine p.m., I would canvas. Yeah. So that was my first. That was like I got a paycheck, and I felt that you know the pressure's on. Got to meet the goals, and so yeah. I spent a summer canvassing. For one of the perks, Colorado. Perks. Oh yeah, I learned a lot about people doing humanity. That. I, yes, <laughs> occasionally I would walk into a house and it would be like 140 birds in the front room, or or a, a, a naked person, or or trash up to knee high, or or ordinary nice people. That is so funny that you say that. I was gonna say that is so funny. So my crazy stories were naked people, one woman who was the nicest human in the planet, but trash just up to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And then another house I was in, there were chipmunks running around. So that's very funny. It wasn't birds, but yeah, it was I remember wildlife. looking up at a parrot and it, <laughs> and it suddenly expanded to three times its size, all its feathers <laughs> stood out. And I just stepped backward like three feet. <laughs> and also people say things to you. Like I remember having this nice conversation about the environment and then someone, and then the person by the door said, well, actually really the problem in our state is this fact people. Oh God. Like, oh my God. And really? you're just like, yeah, no, I, and yeah. yeah, you meet some people that are not people you want to be friends with. The other thing you see, I saw for the first time, um, you know, cause I was 18. I don't know how old you were. I was young and something like that. Yeah. And you'd go to a, I mean, it was Vermont, so it's different it's in gentle. some respects. Yeah. It's <laughs> gentle. That's the right way to put it. But you could go from one part of town where people are living pretty well. And then another part of town where you really feel the difference and, that impressed on me. Like, uh, it definitely, it definitely committed me more to what we were doing and what we were fighting for. And, and I think thing. it's some really good training on persuasion. Yeah. Like just being, <laughs> talking to a person one-on-one -on -one with them on their doorstep, you have yeah. to get a knack for that over time. Well, and just being aggressive or, and not, and we tend to use that word in a pejorative way, but, but just asking but not for shy, what you need. Not, yeah, yeah. Just being assertive. And I actually think it's, it's good, good training for life, I guess. I think so <laughs> and taking really rejection, taking rejection oh, yeah, and failure and all that. Oh, yeah. 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 I, <laughs> it's, it's embedded in me. Sure. <laughs> Probably helped me. We're not going to get into our love lives here. No, are we? no, no. Well, I, I've been married a long time. But, 
Um, so what was the first campaign you managed? Because I know you made, that's where your career really went. Yeah, yeah, what I like to do. The first one I managed was in Virginia in 2005. Mm -hmm. We just finished the Kerry campaign. And I actually remember, I mean, I, don't know, I was 25 or something like that, 24. So I, I don't want to overblow it, but that was a little bit of a crossroads. Like, do I do I do something in D.C.? I'd been helping at the D.N.C. and ran get out the vote for Kerry in Wisconsin. And I remember talking to one of my mentors and saying, "What should I go do?" And he gave me great advice that I've always followed and passed on, which was like, "Go where you can influence people and money and resources and make a difference." And that's managing a race. And it's not as glorified, but get out there and do the real work. And so I did. And it was a district out in Springfield and Burke, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think Bush had won it by a point in 04 in the reelect. And then Warner had won it by a point or somewhere, something like that in 2000. So it was a real swing district. Yep. And it was opening up. Um, the chief of staff for the current Republican delegate there was running as a Democrat. He decided to switch parties. And... Um, it was a great race. It was probably, I think the reason I really loved that campaign was it was so small. It was, I think, I don't remember, it was like 10 precincts or something, really tiny. And we got to re we got to run the campaign that every, every person who loves organizing and the field aspect of a campaign, we really got to go all the way. We got to do 100% of what we wanted to do, if that makes sense. We didn't need to cut corners. And uh, he ended up doing really well. He knocked on 13,000 doors, my candidate. And then we had a huge volunteer presence in every precinct. Everybody was assigned a neighborhood. He, and he won by, um, definitely won by double digits, you know. And does that, uh, does that year feel a little bit like this year? Yes. Well, in particular, people forget how consequential Hurricane Katrina was for George W. Bush. That was the real turning point for him. And who knows what's going to happen with, you know, with yeah. what's going on in the Carolinas with the current president. And I was saying to someone walking down the hall here, I think this feels a lot like 2006. It just gets kind of that downward spiral accelerates the last yeah. month, you know. It's not good to be on the other side of it. No. I mean, there's still time. Anything it, can happen. I know this and could change that. quite a bit. Yeah. And pedal to the metal. We don't want to take anything for granted. And I think some people's expectations are way too high. But we have a big opportunity not only to pick up seats, but elect a lot of new, fresh blood. And that's great. Yeah, it really is. What's the first statewide for you? Well, I ran some seats for Hillary in her primary, in her first primary. Right, which and we then, were both on that campaign. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. God, I forgot about it. And then... Um, and you won the states that you ran, right? Like Nevada? Yeah, although... Yeah. Although some of them are a little this. complicated. Yeah, Nevada was complicated because we... we I think we won the caucus like 55%, but when the delegates laddered up to the statewide level, yeah. I think they got 13 and we got 12. I so, so I hate too. to admit that, but that is that is what happened. That happened a lot in that primary. It happened to Bernie in Wyoming, I remember, I think. Yeah. We tied in delegates, but he got some extra percent, whatever. But then I ran the uh, Jean Shaheen's Senate race in a really important 2008. Race. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. And she, I'm so proud of her. Like, she's been such a rock star. Yeah. And then McAuliffe. Yes. Yeah. And we actually did debate prep in the very studio that we're in back oh. in the day. Um, <laughs> the hallowed hall. Yes. And he was, and he was a rock star too. That was a tough campaign because historic, you know, I'm a big believer in cycles and politics. It's a very real thing. We're in, we're in one of those secular times now. Yeah. And, uh, when a Democrat won the White House or Republican won the White House, their party had, I think since the mid sixties lost the governorship in Virginia, it sort of seesawed like that. And we were able to overcome that. And Terry was 
a real joy to work with. And the thing I always say is he made me most proud, like when he was governor, you know what I mean? When you elect someone who does so many great things, it makes you feel really good about the work you put in. Have you ever run a national campaign? I did once. Yeah. I don't know if you, I don't well, know. How, how did that, how did, you, how did that job come to you? You, you reminded me, <laughs> I'd forgotten. Um, it's funny. People ask me now as we're, the presidential's not started yet, but people, you know, there's yeah, it's stuff started. going on beneath the surface. Yeah. And people always ask me, you know, how do people become managers? It's really personal to the candidates in a lot of ways. And yeah. so for me, it wasn't something I pursued and it wasn't something that I like submitted a resume for. It just came together. And yeah, I'd worked for her for her entire primary. I'd ran a lot of states for her there. And it's not like she called me up out of the blue one day. I'd been helping and advising and helping them think about how to set it up. But it came together, and I don't think I ever would have managed it if I hadn't worked for her in 2008. You know, Were you scared to get a job like that? I mean, I would have been. That's a great question. Yeah. Yes, I was. You know what it is, though? There's so much work to do. It's less scared and more... Um, busy yeah i was gonna say because it wasn't i did never feel overwhelmed like i don't know what to do but it was it was like oh my gosh i have so much to do yeah one of the advantages that we had was we really had our pick of the talent mm. and so boy that i i don't envy some of the people who are gonna have to put together a campaign this next time it's just gonna be really hard to get talent and that because there's so many candidates yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we knew that we'd have a decent amount of resources. I mean, I, I think people imagine, people forget actually Bernie outraised Hillary in the primary. So he actually had more money than Hillary. So we had to be very resource conscious. However, we I, I knew that I could afford the digital stuff I needed and the communication stuff I needed. That wasn't in some camp, some of these campaigns are really going to be like shoestring, you know. Given that you've run all these campaigns now, what advice would you give to someone maybe running one of the 2020s or running other statewides? What, what's the top advice that you give to a new campaign manager? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've been saying to people is that there are a few ways to prepare for a campaign and a few things to have in place. And... The two I get asked about most are how many field offices do I have and how do I structure the staff and all that. And another one that I see that's litigated a lot in the press is a set of litmus tests. So are you going to support Medicare for all? Are you going to support uh, Medicaid benefits for people who don't have citizenship yet? Those sorts of things. And I have tended to, this cycle, discourage people from getting too in the weeds on those things. I think what is, if I were managing or helping a candidate prepare, I would really urge them to answer the question, why me, why now? Yeah. What am I fighting for? What's the idea that I am running to represent? Because you won't... I don't believe that a candidate will succeed this time because they have a more clever ground strategy or something. They will get the people and the money that they need to succeed from their idea and from the following that that idea generates. So now there's some logistics to that, organizing a presence on social media and all those sorts of things, really important. But the fuel rod for that is the idea. And I think it's so easy because it's, 
because other people can figure it out for you, frankly, is like, what are the positions I'm going to take and how many offices am I going to have and what's my budget? But at the end of the day, these candidates just, they internally just need to, to, to be on a mission for something. And so that's been my advice to people. I think that's good advice. What do you think with respect to 2016, you guys nailed in the campaign and what do you think you maybe didn't? Yeah. In the primary, I think we really nailed the delegate strategy and that's why we won. And frankly, I think some Which of Which is what wasn't nailed in 2008. It, yes. Yes, there was a right, lot of including in the state I ran yeah, of Nevada, right? right. Um, and certainly across the, the caucus states yeah, that, that weren't right. battled for, I think, in retrospect, we know that. Well, and speaking of things that you can fixate on, I know, because I, I ran Ohio and Indiana for her, um, I think we netted... I don't. I can't remember the exact number. Maybe seven delegates or something like that in Ohio. I think Obama netted nine, or maybe or maybe even more in Kansas in the caucus. You yeah, know what exactly. I mean? So the press will will and Idaho was like that. Too. Idaho, exactly, yeah. exactly. And the press will want to steer you into thinking that how much you want to state by in terms of the percentage. Or whether you won or whether you lost is what mattered. No, yeah. it's your delegate total. Perfect example was Bernie won Michigan and it, that, in the primary. Yeah. And it was just this huge deal. And look, there, it was obviously a warning of things to come. So yeah. I don't want to diminish it in that regard. But I think he netted four delegates there. We netted more than 10 in Mississippi that same night, yeah. you know, but the, so the narrative coming out was like Hillary's doomed when in fact the narrative was we won that night. Like we netted more delegates. Our, right. our, our lead grew. So I thought we nailed that. I think we, as I said, Bernie raised more money than us. We could have gone broke if we had not set aside. And this was the thing Hillary and I talked about a lot in the summer and the fall of 2015 was building a nest egg, saving our money. We did not run. I, I remember we lost a series of states, a series of caucuses, and it's hard to not play. And yeah. I just I remember we'd have those conversations and she was great about sticking to the plan. It's like you can't afford we can't afford to go on Seattle TV. We're going to run out of money. So I think we did a good job on that. I think where we really struggled in the primary was we just were never able to push past emails and Benghazi. And when she had to go testify, I think as a Democrat, you we, you, you felt great because it was she sat there for whatever it was, 11 was hours incredible. and just yeah. took it. And she was incredible. And that felt great. But I think at the end of the day, over time, it was like layers of paint. We were just getting buried in this narrative that was fundamentally negative and wasn't. It was never about what she was going to do for the voters. It was about what scandal she was managing. Do you, th do you think if you ran it again, you could have? You could extricate her from that, knowing what you know? Or, I mean, look, I'm a believer in you've got to take responsibility. And so it'd be easier for me to sit here and say, well, the Republicans did it and they certainly deployed every possible resources they could. Bernie sort of, I think, passively brought some of this up. The media, I think, over fixated. But look, we had a lot of advantages coming in. It was our responsibility to win this campaign at the end of the day, campaigns are about communicating a message to voters. I don't think the message that we needed and wanted to communicate was able to cut through. One of the things I always tell people to do is go watch our announcement video. And that's what we wanted to say. It was like very little about her. It was all about the voters. It was, it was about their lives. It was about people having a child, a, a couple getting married, a kid graduating from college and going into their career. Like that's what the campaign was supposed to be about. And we just... 
you know, we couldn't, we couldn't wrestle that lion. So, yeah, when I talk to critics of the campaign, they, and I've had a number on the show, they say things like, we got the negative side, right? Against right. Trump, we didn't get the positive side, right? Yeah. And, and I, I, I guess I'm underscoring that. I think the mistake some people make is they think that there were easy tactical solutions to that. So what a lot of people don't know is we ran a ton of positive television, in particular, like her to camera. And and by the way, not just in the battleground states, we ran, we, it's actually cheaper sometimes to just buy national television across America. (laughs) So we were on national television with her to camera talking directly to the, to the voters about her infrastructure plan, what, about her own motivations for why she was seeking this office, why she was in politics and public life. I think the problem was people had known her for so long and there was this consistent narrative for 20 plus years. I think it was really hard for people to open up and hear something new. And I, I remember after the convention, we'd run a bunch of of t- television with her to camera and it just didn't it didn't move things and honestly we also ran a lot of television about Donald Trump you know another criticism that i you know and and, and these are important discussions to have people like well they didn't attack d- how Donald Trump hurt working people and all that i mean we we ran television ads about how gr- make make america great again hats are actually made in china we had him on david we we had this one ad that was completely unproduced it was just actual footage of him on the david letterman show with david letterman like taking out the neckties and being like this is made in bangladesh and this is you know there wasn't a more direct and and honestly credible way to show what a fraud donald trump was and it didn't change opinion. And so so that's not to say, well, we did all we could. Forget about it. It's just more that um, this, this was really complicated. And I think we need to avoid or we need to be careful of saying, oh, well, she just needed to run this type of an ad or that. It's tougher than that. And in fact, you know, Bernie Sanders, television was great for him. I remember Washington State, I was just talking about, you know, some of these states, he would go up on television and his numbers would shoot up. It would take usually a week to 10 days, but television is actually a really powerful way for people to get information. And yeah, look, we tried, we tried coming at it a bunch of different ways. And I, I think the biggest problem was voters just, they knew a lot about her. And I think they're, I, I don't know how open they were to hearing something new. The big things it seemed like the debates, the convention went off really well. I mean, she won those big things to me and won the popular vote. So, I mean, like, how has it sat with you to have been in such a historic moment and to have come up short? What's the feelings left now that we're almost two years (laughs) past it? Yeah. (sighs) Look, losing is so hard. I mean, it's, um, and more than anything, I always felt really bad for Hillary because, and I think people know this, she worked so hard and she really took a lot and her intentions were the right ones. She wanted to help people, you know, and that's why she was in this. And I, I don't think she ever got a chance to really express that as we talked about. And I felt really bad for the staff particularly the younger ones, people who either this was their first campaign. We had some people who had worked on Obama's reelection. That was their second. And I think for a lot of them, the last few years have been about the good guys winning. If you, if you know, if you worked hard 
if you were smart and um, did what you were asked, you could win. And yeah. and so for some of them, I really worried they'd either get out of the game and say politics is awful and it's not fair. And I don't care. I'm not going to do it anymore. We just had some really skilled people, and I just worried that they would think that somehow this was about them. You know what I mean? If, their if fault. The ones I've talked to did not get out of the game. You yeah, know, they, yeah, no, they, it's they, they been doubled great. down on it, yeah. and they've real. You know, you talked about the delegate strategy and how you kind of got that right yeah. in the primary. The kind of analog to that is the electoral strategy in, yeah. in the electoral college. Yeah, yep. And clearly, that didn't come yeah. out right. Kind of weirdly. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, yeah. like really painfully yeah 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 <laughs> Do, was that a campaign error was that um the appeal of trump on trade being different that was it like to his credit was it to the clinton campaign's yeah discredit yeah was it unpredictable what's your what's your yeah, take on that it's a great question i think the hardest part about it is it it was a i'm not gonna say it's a perfect storm but it was a storm so there were a lot of different things that came into play yeah. which make it hard to unpack should we have done more in Wisconsin, Michigan? A hundred percent, right? I mean, there's just no question. You didn't need about to do that. that much more, maybe. Right. But it's right. hard to know what doing more would change, right? Well, and this is the point. This yeah. is where it starts to get murky. We spent more money per capita than any other state in Pennsylvania. She spent a ton of time there the last week. Our biggest rally of the entire election, actually the biggest rally in the election. Hillary, Trump, Bernie, the whole deal was in Pennsylvania the night before the election. In fact, we spent more money in Pennsylvania than any other state overall, except for Florida. But again, the per capita was the highest there. And we were on on television in Pennsylvania early in the summer. So there was a legitimate question. Was just dumping more resources in going to make a difference? And I also think one of the things we struggled with on the campaign was we saw that there were problems in Wisconsin, Michigan. We didn't think we were losing. We thought it was a lot closer than people believed, but we didn't want to talk about that a lot because we didn't want to invite Trump in. Mm -hmm. And we also had a sense that contesting it more, like having more campaigning or a longer campaign was actually going to like potentially drive people away, if that makes sense. And this is, this is a hard it's a hard concept and people who manage, you know, if you've run a race or two, you get it. It's like, do and it's a fundamental question you ask, do I want a long campaign or a short campaign? Do I want more? Do I want less? And there really are times where more hurts you, where the more people learn, the more they think about it, the more they might walk away. And we had a lot of reason uh, to believe that. However, doing things the same way, you know, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Yeah. So of course we should have done more. I think the other huge X factor is Comey. I mean, the polling sank dramatically that last week. We were watching it in real time. How could it not? Exactly. Yeah. Did I think we were going to lose Wisconsin, certainly on election day? No. I remember telling Jen Palmieri uh, after the polls closed, we were sitting in a in a room together near, near Hillary's suite. And I said to her, I was like, something bad's going to happen tonight. It always does. <laughs> this campaign, we never, you know, we always had a joke. We don't get nice things. I said, I think it's like a recount in Michigan or something like that. That's just, So we definitely were worried, but we also thought we had a legit chance of Florida. The early vote stuff out of there was phenomenal. And so, so again, it, it's interesting. It's like the, it's like the debate around messaging. 
I worry when people say, well, we just show up in Wisconsin and it's all good. Like, yeah. that's all you have to do. It's no, it's like, what idea are you talking about when you're in Wisconsin? And we were under all those layers of paint. And I don't know that showing, I, I worry that actually showing up more could have made it worse, but who knows? I mean, I talked to someone in August and I was really worried about the election. unlike a lot of other yeah. people. I talked to someone in August from the campaign in analytics or something. And they said, a lot of stuff we're trying is not working. We're just hoping yeah for the debates now to turn it, to hold it our way. And that scared the hell out of me when I heard Yeah, that. well, I think that, look, I think that's right. And again, these are things, this is what's funny about expectations. These are things you can't talk about, right? Like right. I can't go on Meet the Press no. three weeks out and be like, you know what, Chuck? A lot of the stuff we're doing is not working. But <laughs> like, no, look, there was definitely an element of the campaign where we were just, we were ahead and it's look, just like sports sometimes that's a tough place to be right right, right like right, you, you, yeah. other someone has right. the, the ex excitement and the momentum and the, right. and the underdog comes through right and they only would win one out of 100 but they win right. that one and it look it was hard it, like i said we didn't get to have nice things and and just everything we did was so micro analyzed i mean the the perfect example of this is hillary uh you know, fainted uh, at that 9-11 uh, service. I walked to work that day. It was blazing hot. We were all really sick. She was sick. The press didn't know for like half an hour where she was. And they, they, they went, went crazy. crazy. And then Donald Trump's crazy doctor, the guy looked crazy, sounded crazy. The letter was crazy. Puts out a crazy letter that's totally like a lie. You know, it's yeah. just a lie. And there wasn't like her her situation where the truth is out there was like treated so much differently. So it was just hard. Sometimes people like be bold. And it was like, well, I sometimes I wanted like take my job for a day, try being bold on this campaign. <laughs> it is so hard, <laughs> you know? So I want to talk to you about what you've been up to since the campaign. Yeah. I don't want to torture you anymore with the campaign. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> what have you been up to since the campaign? Yeah. Uh, well, part of us is getting a lot more sleep. Um, Glad about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, a lot of our staff, as you mentioned, have gone on to do campaigns. So it's actually been really great to talk with them and try to be helpful there. I've been at the Belfer Center at Harvard doing a bipartisan project on cybersecurity and campaigns. It's funny. It feels different now than it did whatever it was the early spring of 2017 when we tried to get this thing up and running because back then, you know, Russia was like a conspiracy theory and a threat to campaigns. I think people just saw it as a this weird thing that happened on Hillary. We're not quite sure what happened. And now it's like very well understood. This is a serious issue. It deserves attention. And so what's the name of the project again? Yeah, it's called Defending Digital Democracy. Right. And I actually I met up with Matt Rhodes, who ran Mitt Romney's campaign. And we, you know, we're we're members of a very small and exclusive club of unsuccessful presidential campaign managers. And we were talking, I didn't know that the Romney campaign had been hacked by the Chinese and it had been very expensive and complicated for them to deal with. And he so he totally got it. He totally was on board. And I talked to him. I said, I want to set up a project like this. Could you do it together? It needs to be bipartisan. He said, absolutely. And so we've been um, doing it together. We brought in a bunch of people from the NSA, DOD, you know, Microsoft, Google, and others. And we put together a little playbook for campaigns um, because what was disturbing to me was there were, if you were a campaign that wanted to better secure yourself, that wanted to do the right thing, there was literally no resource. Like there's nobody to call. All these campaigns don't have the money. So there's a free resource online now. You just Google, you know, uh, cybersecurity playbook and it comes up. And, you know, since then we've been doing more. We created a video. We've been putting out little updates. We have a Twitter account that keeps people brief. So, you know, we, we recognize the, the 
campaign managers need to focus on running their campaigns, but we're trying to provide what we can to make this piece a little bit easier. How much of your time has gone into that? Well, last year it was a lot. I mean, it just took a lot of work. We also did an, uh, an enormous amount with state election officials. So we we created a handbook for them. We basically developed a tabletop exercise so they can rehearse a major cyber event, that sort of thing. Uh, so it was a lot back then. Uh, in the academic world, the summer is a little bit quieter, but we're actually, I'm headed back uh, later this week. We're getting the engine started up again. And I've also just been doing a lot with the students there, and that's been really exciting. Like, I'm very... Very optimistic about our future being around these these folks. Like we're they're really smart. We're in great hands, and um, they're ready to work really hard. You're awfully young to be like emeritus from campaigns. <laughs> yeah. Where do you want to take your career from now forward? That's such a great question. I don't know. You know, when the campaign was over, people who know me know I, I just I'm very future focused. I'm very work focused for better or for worse, and I just like move on to the next thing. One of the things that other people who had run campaigns told me was you don't know now how tired you really are yeah, and how wound up emotionally you really are. In okay. fact, one doctor told me that like you physiologically change a little bit when you're in a high stress situation, like your nerve wiring or I'm, something like that. I'm sure that's true. Um, and, and I and I, th- I was like, oh, whatever. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm on to my next project. I'm doing this cyber thing. It really does take a long time. And so for me, the last two years have, have been – a lot about just getting back in a in a you know in a healthier rhythm, doing some of that rewiring. I have no idea. You know, I want to do everything I can right now to be helpful in the midterms, and then uh, you know, with the presidentials, it's been really exciting. You know, to have some of those preliminary conversations. I hope that I can be helpful. I hope that. I can help to impart or at least give my take on what some of the lessons are from last time. But, you know, we'll just see. Are you thinking of that as like a role where you talk to different campaign managers or are you thinking I might go run one of these again? Yeah, right now I've just been talking to everybody trying to be helpful. I mean, I'm not planning to be part of, you know, a campaign this time. Um, And to be honest with you, it's really fun to... Not have that stress. Yeah, Yeah, no, definitely not have the stress. But also just... uh, I don't know. I, I, I like visualize. I want to see that person be successful. I don't know who it's going to be or who their candidate. It's got to feel like I just can't wait to. It's see It's got to feel like vindication and revenge to win the next one a little bit. Some, I mean, even this midterm to to like have it be a repudiation would make a big difference psychologically to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, I want Trump to lose. It's yeah. also one of the reasons why I, I think I'm more cautionary than a lot of people on impeachment. I, I feel like, cautionary too. Yeah, yeah like I, I think there's and there's political reasons why it makes sense to not do that. But also, like, I, I want the American people to impeach him. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I also, I think coming out of the last campaign, again, precisely because it is so complicated, the reasons that what happened happened, you know, there's been all kinds of interpretations about this works and that doesn't work. The real answer is this stuff is really hard. It's very scenario dependent. And I want to see a team do some of the great work that I saw our staff do and succeed. And I'm hoping that a lot of the people that were on our team are on that winning team. And I want them to have to, to have that moment, basically. And I, I will live vicariously through them. <laughs> I bet. One model for a losing campaign manager of a of a national campaign was Gary Hartz. Mm. You know, he, yeah. he, he, ran, he ran the 72 McGovern campaign, then he ran for Senate, won that seat, and became later a very serious candidate for president. Probably yeah. should have won if he yeah. hadn't made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. have you ever yeah. thought yourself of being the candidate? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. 
I don't know how good I'd be at it, to be honest with you. You seem like um, a pretty adept speaker. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I think it's more, look, I, I have seen a lot of candidates who care about doing the right thing. They're operational like me. It's like, it's like, okay, there's the boulder, there's the top of the hill. I got to push that up. And I think that I think today's political environment lends itself more to people who can communicate in broader brushstrokes. And and plus, like, like I said, Jean Shaheen, I was so proud to elect her, uh, or to, not to elect her myself, but to run that campaign. You know, Terry McAuliffe, uh, Dave Marson, whose campaign we talked about in Virginia. Um, I helped run a coordinated campaign in Maryland. These people like changed people's lives. You know, there are people who have health care today. People are getting a better education. Women who have access to health care services like that is plenty for me. And I, I feel really confident, like something's going to come up. I, I've, the, you know, I believe in the karma and I'm in a very Zen space. Like, so the right thing's going to come and it's going to be awesome. You're kind of associated with a particular philosophy of campaigning, which is very field oriented, which is like the canvassing we talked about mm-hmm. early in this interview. Can you sort of lay that out in a paragraph or two? Like, what is it that you believe is the right way to run a campaign how do you coach people to do that? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think one thing that's happening today is there's a sense that the ends, or rather that the means will always justify the end. More than I certainly in my relatively short career have ever seen. And that you could do, that you can lie, cheat, and steal to yeah, win. Yeah, it's like you just because like, somebody just did that. Yeah, and yeah. it's like you just you got to do any whatever it takes to win. And instead I, of we, when they go low, we go high. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, well, you know what it is for me? Very, there was a, uh, the woman who ran, I, I worked on Howard Dean's primary in 2004 and the woman who ran our campaign in New Hampshire, I le- just learned a ton from her. Her name was Karen Hicks. I and know her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course you know her. And one of the things she always used to say is at the end of the day, win or lose, we're spending all this money. We're working so hard we have to leave something behind. You can't just spend tens of millions of dollars and there's nothing. And I would like to think that the literally hundreds of millions of dollars we spent on the Clinton campaign organizing volunteers that the resistance grew out of that, right? That there were people who'd, you know, we had we had organizers on the ground who had trained them to knock on doors, who had built capacity that is today creating, you know, what's hopefully going to be a very successful election. So what I believe and what I counsel people on is that campaigns need to be rooted in the community. They need to build leadership and capacity in that community. One of the first organizers I ever hired in Vermont, she's now the majority leader there. You know, I'd like to think that that who's that Jill Krowinski, she's now the majority leader in the house there. Like, I'd like to think that some of what we did together on that campaign built leadership in her that got her where she is today. She's fighting for paid family leave there. So the campaign should build capacity in the in the communities it is seeking to represent, right? So that's at the end of the day what I believe. But it, in today's environment, that's hard, you know, because it's driven more by social media and by an echo chamber and less by people's ability to persuade one-on-one, like I'm sitting right across from you. And so I hope that we'll find a way where it can be easier and more in a campaign selfish interest to build that community and build that leadership on the ground. One of the things that happened sort of dramatically after the Hillary's loss almost two years ago is that a whole 
bunch of groups were spawned. Political entrepreneurs formed Indivisible and Swing mm-hmm, Left. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm sure you're aware of all yeah. of these things. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think about how this sort of new progressive infrastructure is developing and what you think uh, is good or bad about it. Because it's sometimes outside of the party in a yeah, way. Yeah. It's sometimes duplicative. It's it's sometimes messy, but it's also great and exciting and, and yeah. change-making. Yeah, I think it's great. And um, look, you know, I've been working on the cybersecurity stuff. There's so many people trying to help campaigns with cybersecurity. And someone was saying to me the other day, oh, this is a problem. There's a, I said, no, you know, it's like this is it's a problem if we didn't have a bit of a mess and we didn't have people coming from all different directions. I think the innovation's good. More people now can see themselves in this process. That's really good. I think what you'll find is that these things go in cycles. And so if in 2020 we were to suddenly win the White House and the Senate and the House, I think you will see a lot of this shrink away because what happens is when you're in power, you the base does become more apathetic. And I think we're constantly trying to find ways to avoid that. So look, some of these groups are going to be phenomenally successful and they're going to be here in 10 years. Some of these groups are going to fizzle out, but it's, it's great. It's great. I think I'd be remiss coming as I do from the world of political technology to not to ask you a little bit about 2016 and, mm. and technology. Yeah, I don't know how close you were to all of those decisions as campaign manager, but what do you think the campaign got right on technology at a high level, and what do you think it might have missed out on? That's a great question. I think what we made big strides on was, first of all, finally developing a way to target people in the media that they are most likely to consume. So by that, I mean, rather than saying, well, a lot of our people watch television, so we'll sort of put this much money into that. And I think some people are mostly through digital. So, you know, we'll do it that way. We literally modeled our the people we were trying to, to reach and allocated our spending according to the platforms that those people were on. And this is a big question. You know, people talk about, are we spending enough on digital? And this that was actually really the genesis of this. As I was saying to my team, some people are telling me to do 20% of your budget or 25% of your budget. Some people are saying 50% of your budget. There's got to be a better way to answer that question, right? Mm-hmm. And so we literally did a nationwide multi-state experiment over Uh, I think it was over a month where we were running television ads, digital ads, direct mail, and doing calls with volunteers. And they were doing a persuasion message on Hillary Clinton. And we got empirical data back. And what was was the main learning from that? Um, It was funny. It really reinforced a lot of our suspicions. But like we felt then really good about the suspicions. So what we learned, for example, is that older people were moved relatively more by television, younger people more by digital. One thing that was surprising was mail was surprisingly successful with young people. They were checking their mail or they were getting, they were clearly absorbing because we controlled, right? So some young people only got mail and we saw them move. Unsurprisingly, volunteer phone calls were the most persuasive thing, right? It's just like we learned this again, like real human beings who are really committed and volunteering their time are just the best messengers out there. So we made those decisions rationally based on what we saw worked. So I think we did that well. I think the problem that no campaign has been able to solve in the Democratic Party in the last 10 years, and we were not either, was how to integrate all the data we have. We are just, we are we are imprisoned by our inability to efficiently 
pool together all the different sources of data we have. It's this thing that in theory is so simple. It's like 300 million human beings in this country and we have all these different bits of data about them. And so, okay, great. So we just slot all that data in. It is so complicated. We took a run at it very, right from the beginning of the campaign and could not solve it. And it is a problem we are still trying to solve today. We'll, have you thought of you know, tackling that problem? Because like I've talked to people recently even who, you know, there's, there's competing data sources within the Democratic right. Party, which you're well right. aware of. Some of them right. are suing right. each other. Right. Right. There's <laughs> also some people who've started up other, Mikey Dickerson has yep. a thing, a nonprofit. Yep. There, yep. There's uh, the company that I founded, yep. uh, which is in the mix a little bit. Yep. But, but there isn't what the Republicans did was, right. was take you know, nine figures or something right. and and really build something centralized. Maybe that's something that needs to be tackled at, at the very large donor, very national level. Well, and you just hit the nail on the head. It's a money problem. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the DNC with hard money is never going to have the resources to undertake this. I would like it to be something that is either within the DNC, although I think that's hard for the reason we mentioned, or sort of lashed up somehow, whatever the legal framework allows to the DNC, because I think the thing, what we do better than the Republicans is we have one, well, there are multiple voter files, but for candidates, yeah. all candidates feed off the same voter file. Yeah. It belongs to the state parties. It belongs to the. It belongs to us. You know what I mean? It isn't privatized. Yeah. It isn't. There's something it, that it does work about that. And, yeah. and, and and is we have a lot of history in that. We have a lot of tools that have been tested. I wonder who's chirping. I don't yeah, know. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the Russians. Yeah. Um, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. What are they going to learn here? <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. If Hillary Clinton won, this would have been my number one thing. Because it, nothing in my mind is more important. What do you think you would have gone on to do if she had won? I mean, what would your role I would have, have loved to have focused on this. Yeah. But like at the I, DNC or? I don't know. Wherever. Yeah. You know, yeah. it should. We, I think if we had won, forget about whether it's Hillary or anybody else. I yeah. think if Democrats had won the White House, we would have been able to organize the resources to do something like this. It's just with you, if you don't have the White House, it's too hard. I didn't. I, I wasn't ever interested in going to the White House or doing any of that. I, I, I Or I may have started the next chapter. I, Here's something. When people ask me about becoming her campaign manager, I was literally doing campaigns from 2002 until 2016, like straight, yeah. like in, I don't know how many states, out on the road constantly, a little bit at the committees here, but it was straight. And so I was ready to do some other stuff at some point. <laughs> well, just what are the sorts of things, what are the sort of arenas you've considered going into? I mean, there's writing and film and, you know, there's yeah. so many things that are not politics. Yeah. Or, is this, or are you going to stay within politics? Oh, no, no, no. I'm I'm open to anything, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think based on my age, based on what I've done in the past, based on what happened, I think when I walk into a room right now, people just still see me as a political animal and they all think I'm going to do another campaign or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I almost came to peace over the last two years with um, you just like I'm just not going to set on a clear cut brand new course today it's just like it's like not time yeah. and that's fine and like with the cyber project i'm doing i know i'm contributing and i'm helping that's what matters to me but it'll i don't know i just believe it'll be obvious soon you know when you run a large enterprise like that i'm sure you come to some theories of, of leadership mm. what are yours i have two conflicting views on this coming out of the campaign i i, I know there's a harmony but I, I i don't know what the right balance is on the one hand, I believe good campaign managers lead from the front and they spend a lot of time in the trench with their people. 
So when I went out to States, you know, it was really important to me to spend time in the field offices, knocking on doors. It was important to me as a campaign manager, I spent time raising money because I, I, I wanted everybody to feel responsible for winning, not just doing their job. Yeah. And it was also, I knew we were going to lose a lot in the primary. And so it was really important to me that people felt like they were part of a team and that we were winning and losing together. So for example, one of the things we did was everybody at headquarters had to go out and canvas in New Hampshire precisely because I knew we were going to lose. And it was important that we, that that wasn't on New Hampshire, that wasn't their loss and the rest of us are going to move on and go find somebody to take credit for. We were going to lose together. And we were going to go down fighting like hell. And so I really believe, I believe in that. And I believed in like spending time with my people and really having a sense of what their challenges were and like getting in there and ripping barriers out of the way. So that's a very hands-on end. I think on the other end, when you're running a campaign, which is a billion dollar, a presidential campaign, it is a billion dollar enterprise. At the end of the day, the thing that only you can do is make decisions. And in order to make decisions well, your mind must be clear. You have to be rested. You have to have enough information, but you can't be flooded with so many nuances that you have to do gymnastics to wrap your brain around a problem. You have to kind of connect your brain and your gut, which is like where your wisdom is, and make good decisions. And it's hard to do both of these things. Right. I think being in the trench with my people was really important during the primary because it was hard. And I think the kid, there were many points where the campaign could have fallen apart. On the other hand, I know there were days when I was tired and I, I remember being disappointed in myself that I was that tired. And, um, a few times when I had to defer or delay a decision because I just didn't feel capable in a way. And, the problem that campaigns have that like a CEO at a company doesn't necessarily have is that time is the resource on a campaign and you don't have the luxury to meditate on something. Sometimes you just don't, you know, you have to make split decisions. And so that's the man, that is the, the challenge for every campaign manager is how do I make the right decision at the right time? You can't rush but you can't delay. It, campaigns die when you delay. I think that there's a, a lot of earned wisdom there I can, <laughs> I can hear. That, and I think even I, myself having run much smaller enterprises, I resonate to that. I wonder how you think your principal, Hillary Clinton, mm. had it right with respect to that ability to get into the trenches and deal with specific problems and people mm. making big decisions and leading and so on. Well, I think in this respect, well, two things. First, she is superhuman. So she worked like way longer hours than I, and I'm not just, I'm not blowing smoke here. This is the honest to God truth. I thought that if I ran her schedule for a week, I'd be sick for You'd a month. You'd keel over. Yeah. yeah. No, she, she was tw literally twice my age and worked way longer than I did. And I just, it stopped. I mean, she would, and I. Was that I, good? I thought she worked too hard sometimes. Yeah. I thought she needed more rest. She, though, I remember like a Sunday morning, I'd be like, thank God I can sleep till like eight or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? And she would call me up at seven. I'd be like, my God, how are you doing this? You know what I mean? And I'd be embarrassed because I'd be, I'd be just ragged. And I'd be like, I, I have no excuse around her to be ragged. Anybody else that can be ragged, but not her. That's one thing, just to be clear. But secondly, this is, I think, 
her strength. Often your your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. I think her greatest strength as as an office holder, as a public servant, was man, she can get in the weeds and she understands how complicated situations can be. And then when she sees a boulder that needs to get pushed up, she pushes the hell out of it. The Iran deal is like the perfect example. Talk about something that is just viciously complicated, so difficult to push through. And she was right there doing it. There's a million other situations when she was Secretary of State or, frankly, Senator. It's what would have made her a phenomenal president. I mean, this is why I worked for her. Phenomenal. Those same attributes are not as useful on a campaign nuance, complexity, understanding and articulating both sides of an issue are in some cases in politics a weakness. She said this herself. And honestly, it's just what like, oh man, it just tears at me sometimes that the cruel reality of democracy is that what rewards you in getting the job is not often the best skills to do the job. And there's like nothing we can do about that. And, and, you, <laughs> and it's possible that you could not have had a greater contrast in 2016 yes. between Trump, <laughs> who I don't think understands any detail. No, and does, and, and does and, not give and, a but, shit. <laughs> but had in the primary and maybe in the general, this ability to be a blunt force instrument yes. with, you know, with, with, with deceit and yeah. and uh, simplification and yeah. all kinds of yeah. things to just hammer other people mercilessly yeah. Yeah. and win. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. And I just, um, that's what just breaks my heart is she was so perfectly prepared to do that job. And I, I hope she's remembered that way. And I hope that um, we don't paper over that because we should we should seek people who are as good as her to be in public office. And the system does not lend itself to that right now. And that is what that is. We're not, I, it, none of this is an excuse. It's like, you gotta live, like the voters are in charge, they choose. So it's like blaming the voters is never a strategy. So I'm not, I'm not making excuses when I say this, but at times we should reflect on the, on the kind of skill we want in our office holder. What are the characteristics you'd like to see in a candidate for the presidency among Democrats in 2020? Well, I think I think a, an elected office holder faces the same tension we were talking about, which is you must be wise and you 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 are making life and death decisions literally every day. And so you have to have the distance and the wisdom to do that. And, and that requires rest and that requires distance, really. I mean, you can't get in the you can't get in the ring on everything. However, there are times where presidents have to lead and they have to get in there and whether it's it's actively working members of Congress to vote a certain way or working governors on certain issue. That's what it takes. So I, I want someone who has the brilliance to find that, you know, that perfect <laughs> balance, which obviously nobody can do perfectly, but in a presidential candidate, we talked earlier about falling into the pitfall of thinking that winning the presidency is about mechanics or a set of litmus tests. And I think the ideal candidate will come in to the race with an approach to the challenges we're facing that transcends these individual litmus tests and that provides them with a 
way to talk directly and frankly to the voters about who we are as a country and where we need to go that doesn't get dragged down into what I think are sometimes superficial fights. Impurity um, or... Yeah, I, exactly. I, yeah. And look, and when I talked about when we struggled with just those layers of paint constantly, maybe somebody, over maybe us. somebody with less history has an easier go right. of it, right? Because they, you know, they're not in the mud, right? Look, twenty years ago to run for president, every campaign is today in our politics based on our laws. You are sustained by money. That money was provided by insiders, bundlers, donors. If they went away. You ran out of cash. Yep. Today, you are sustained by a crowd. You have to build fans. Unless, unless you're Oprah Winfrey or Mike Bloomberg or right, you know. Right, but there's a but the the irony there is there's messaging in that yeah. too. Voters read that, and uh, so there's a freedom. Or Trump, frankly, Trump self funded part of his campaign. Mm -hmm. So look, self funding may provide you the ability to transcend some of this. You don't have to pander at every moment because you're not reliant on how much you're bringing in every week. That's a by the way, that's something a lot of people don't understand. That is very real. You're getting a spreadsheet every day of how much money's coming in. You say something or do something that's starving you, it hurts. And now that we're so dependent on online, man, that is like you can you can live or die <laughs> on a you given know, day. You know, when when Lincoln ran for president, he went and sat and thought about it, and then he wrote a speech. And then he kind of delivered that speech the rest of the way. Yeah. And it, there might be a sense in which if you rethink this if and you're smart enough and you come at it from a different angle, maybe you can give that same speech all along and you don't have to constantly tack. Exactly. And this is what I'm saying about transcending the day to day, because, uh, again, what worries me is people are saying we win on X issue. Like if we just support this kind of healthcare solution, single payer or, or med opt in Medicare for all, whatever, like that's the key. And it's just not it's. Those things are important because they represent an approach. They represent a set of values. But that's I, I just worry that our debates, driven by Trump, by the way, Trump will try to make our he, through his through tweeting, he will try to drive the narrative in our primary and turn it into a bunch of divisive litmus tests. And I that's what I just worry about because what we are fundamentally is about everybody who's born in this country having equal shot at success because that's that's what makes us great as a country, right? We're great when, because we know there's so much talent everywhere. If everybody has an equal shot, we're just gonna be so much better as a country. But if that gets spliced up into a million different, well, I'm for, you know, I'm for a universal right to housing and well, I'm for a universal right to housing with this asterisk or I'm for tuition free college or debt free college, all these, like that's not, you know, we, we, we can't, <laughs> we, if we splice it up that way, nothing's ever going to break through. And by the, and then it gets more divisive than that. You know, on a, a lot of these um, questions, Trump will try to have us fix, only talk about immigration that will be his goal. And we, we just... We have to keep it in a high place. And and I say that as someone who knows deeply, hopefully as well as anybody can, how really hard that is for a candidate to do. We could not dig out of some of that. It's been really great talking to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> you uh, too. Uh, anything else you want to say? Yeah, here's one thing I will say. A lot of people ask me, like, what can I do? And um, I think we're in a really important moment in our republic and in our history. And so what I'd say to people is go all in. So if you have time to go work full time on a campaign, whether that's as an organizer, or you volunteer full time or however, like go do that. 
You know what I mean? Go like give everything you can. And it's like rethink your life a little bit, you know, because we're headed to such a serious place. It is worth your time and, and go do the real work. Engaging on social media and all that stuff is great. But we know, we talked about this, we know that the most potent way to persuade people is to have an honest-to-God conversation. So you, as a person with values and heart who believes something, going and telling what you believe to other people, that is more likely to change their view than any TV ad or any campaign manager or any mail piece or any digital ad. It's more powerful than anything. So go give that if you can. Not everybody can. Kids, families, lives, health, all these things are consideration, but I just would push people to give the most you can. Great thought to finish on. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> that was Robbie Moak. Robbie's at belfercenter.org slash D3P. I hope Robbie continues to find his place in the fight. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with a great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.